Thank you for downloading this program from BBC Radio 4. For more information, visit bbc.co.uk slash radio4. When as a teenager I said I wanted to be a broadcaster, there was a sharp intake of breath. Shouldn't I be considering becoming a piano tuner? or telephone switchboard operator, or even a physiotherapist. That's what blind people did in those days. I suspect that work and disability has always been an awkward fit. People assume we'll do things more slowly, and we'll need more help. Sometimes we do. I wanted to know what it was like in the past when people had to work or starve. What jobs did we do, and what did disabled people themselves have to say about the struggle to make a living. As I've been discovering in this series, their voices are just beginning to be heard, thanks to historians like Chris Mouncey of the University of Winchester. Himself newly blind, he introduced me to a best-selling blind poet, a kind of 18th century broadcaster, I suppose, with a great name, Priscilla Poynton. Priscilla Poynton is a poet who is inventing herself as she speaks. And what comes out of her mouth, extempore, as she calls it, is a mixture of innocence and feistiness. She made herself the centre of society in Chester between about 1760 and 1770. And this is just from her poetry and the range of things she wrote about. Absolutely. Being a blind poet, she wrote about all sorts of different things. She wrote about her life. She wrote about everyday events in her life. And she does write about some very down-to-earth situations, too, that grow out of blindness. Oh, she absolutely does. She writes about needing to go to the toilet when she's visiting friends who've given her punch and wine and beer. And she says they're all great diuretics. And she's surrounded by a group of men who have sent the maids out so there's no one to take her to the loo. Tea, wine, and punch, sir, to be free. Excellent diuretics be. When at your house last night with you, blessing, I own, to you, I said, I should be glad you'd call a maid. The girls, you answered, are from home, nor can I guess when they'll return. Then, in contempt, you came to me, and sneering cried, Dear miss, make free, let me conduct you, don't be nice, or if a basin is your choice, to set you one, I'll instant fly. I blushed, but could not make reply, confused to find myself the joke. I silent sat. Just explain the business model of, of this and how it worked, because I'm having a bit of trouble wondering, you know, it sounds a great idea, but how does it make money for us? Well, in the 18th century, if you wanted to publish a book and the publisher wasn't certain that it was going to sell, you advertised it beforehand. And if you advertised it beforehand, you would collect what was called a subscription list, and that was where the list of people would pay half the money that they were going to pay to get the whole book. And what sort of people would do this? from the Earl of Anglesey to quite ordinary people, the sort of people nowadays who would buy books, a full range of people from lords and ladies to working class people who just wanted to have the book. 
So was she the first blind person who thought of this as a way of making a living? Absolutely not. In 1740, John Maxwell, who was a blind poet from York, set up subscription lists on poems that he published every other year, or at least those were poems that I had found, between 1740 and 1763, each of which had a subscription list of about 200 subscribers. Now, this would probably have given him enough money to live on, certainly more than he was getting from a charity that he'd been a beneficiary from because he stopped receiving the money from them. And what about Priscilla? Do we know how much she made? We have no idea. The one thing we do know is that she had a subscription list of 1,300 people. So I think she was probably quite a wealthy woman. How good is the poetry, would you say? Not great. <laughs> but I don't think that's the point. I think the point about her poetry is that it's poetry from the heart. It's not great poetry. It's poetry written to make money. Whatever her literary merits, Priscilla Poynton made enough money to give up writing poetry. She married a saddler in Chester, dressed in pink silk with a coach and four and tables full of elaborate blancmanges. We know that because she wrote a poem about the blancmanges. It's notoriously difficult to capture the texture of daily working life for disabled people at the other end of the social scale. We have to wait till the mid-19th century to find our chronicler of ordinary working life, Henry Mayhew, whose journalism Dickens so admired. In his 1861 collection, London Labour and the London Poor, Mayhew records the story of a lame Irish crossing sweeper, capturing his voice phonetically. I don't know how much I earn a day. Perhaps I may get a shilling, and perhaps sixpence. I didn't get much yesterday, and I was not out on Saturday. I was ill in bed. Some of the ladies are very liberal. A good lady will give you a sixpence. I was a labouring man, a bricklayer's labourer, and I'd been away from Ireland these 16 years. The way I broke my leg was I fell off a scaffold. I'm not married. A lame man wouldn't get any woman to have him in London at all, at all. I got a deal of friends in London to assist me, but only now and then. What money I get here wouldn't buy a pound of meat, and I wouldn't live only for my friends, by the Lord's mercy. Without the kindness of his friends, it would have been the workhouse for our crossing sweeper, but there he would still have been expected to work to earn his keep, picking oakum, unravelling rope, for instance, so they could be recycled, hence money for old rope. There was no sense of special treatment for disabled people in the workforce. And after all, a lot of bodies were needed to drive the engine of empire. Historian Julie Anderson of the University of Kent. It's quite surprising the way and the means of work that disabled people managed to accomplish within the Victorian period. They really were everywhere. At the lowest level, so we're talking very lower working class people, scullery maids, um, women were taught to sew in order that they might, you know, if they had trouble getting around, that they could at least work from home. Um, further up in the middle classes, you have blind people might be taught to play music or tune pianos. And is there a distinction between men and women? Because uh, you've given quite a lot of jobs there that would traditionally women would have done. Yes. You've also got to remember that women weren't very marriageable if they had a disability. So often they were forced to work and people had to do what they had to do in order to earn their living. 
So, for example, there were a lot of people on the street who begged, who were street vendors, who did all kinds of different work in order to survive. And that was considered acceptable in the Victorian period because work was so important to them or, as individuals and as a community. Or at least earning, I suppose, and not being a charge on the state. Exactly. There were only the poor law guardians who looked after people and who handed out money. And it was very difficult to get money, so it was much easier in a lot of ways to go to work and do the best you could. And if you were a beggar, the Victorians had a strong sense of philanthropy. And what they would do is they would give money to people begging on the street. And they also would give charitable donations that would hopefully get to the people that it was meant for. Resting money from the local authority when you couldn't work was an art then as now. And one of the richest sources we have are the letters written by disabled people to the poor law guardians. Thousands of them have survived. This is a letter from a Charles Simcock. Manchester, December 1857. I think it my duty to inform you that I have totally lost the use of my right leg and have to use a crutch to support me the few hours I am able to go about during the day, and consequently have not been able this last six months to earn food sufficient for myself and family. This letter was brought to us by Professor Stephen King of Leicester University. I asked him what letters like this one tell us about attitudes to work. Everybody in the 18th and 19th centuries identifies themselves through work. Work is what they do, it's how they label themselves in the census and, and other documents. And what's intriguing about these letters is how central work is to the identity and the claims of people with disabilities. All of them, almost without exception, claim that they've either worked hard or they would do work if they could get it or they will return to work. And so the disabled have the same sorts of perceptions of work and its importance as has the wider population. Are they doing some surprising jobs? Oh, they do everything, but basically they do the same range of jobs as everybody else. So this idea that there are just a few jobs that disabled people can do, that's a modern idea. This is a very modern construction. For instance, if we look at somewhere like Bolton, around 60% of all of the um, women who are paid to do nursing in Bolton have a disability. That's an extraordinary figure. 6A, 60%, 60% of all female nurses have a disability. So it's almost like what you would now call a preferred occupation for disabled people. Yes, indeed. And you get other types of occupations as well. So, for instance, those people who lay out the dead are often disabled. Those people who provide cooking and washing services, particularly in the provinces, for people who are sick or old, these women are often disabled. Does nobody else want to do these jobs? Yeah, they want to do these jobs, but there's no point in paying a salary, in effect, to a healthy woman who's a big and strapping and going to be doing work on the farm when you could pay it to someone who's going to be on welfare benefits in the long term. The 14th of June, 1858. It is with feeling of great sadness that I appear before you again on the subject of my poor health. From the repeated inquiries made after me, and the impudence of the female Sarah Tomlinson to my wife whilst I was absent at the doctor's, I'm inclined to think a false statement and wrong impression may be given of my infirmity. I therefore beg to refer you to Dr. Wood, whom I've been under these three months without him being able to cure me, 
or to Dr. Windsor of Manchester that I am at present under for a corroboration of what I have stated. So, Stephen, the parallels here with today are, are very striking, aren't they? This idea that you may be swinging the lead, as it were, and you may be trying to make yourself out to look more disabled than you really are. Yes, you see this clearly in the letter, and the impudent female here is an inspector who's come round to look at the condition of these people, much as you would look at with disability benefit today. Are you disabled enough to receive this benefit? But on the other hand, it also tells you something about disabled people and work because they are expected to work and they expect to work. He testifies that he has not been able to earn, but normally he would be earning, no matter how disabled. A man in his infirmity must not be denied. For who can say when the power of doing and being might be took away? And nothing to do but crawl. There are some striking parallels with today. The debate about work and disability is currently in full swing. What feels different, though, is the sense that in Victorian times, disability could be round the corner for anyone. As that letter writer says so hauntingly, who can say when the power of doing and being might be took away and nothing to do but crawl? If you've enjoyed this programme, you might like to try other Radio 4 podcasts, from Friday Night Comedy and Daily Drama from the Archers, to a range of news, discussions and documentaries. For a full list of available podcasts, visit bbc.co.uk slash radio4.